First uh, Timothy chapter one, page one one nine one in the Pew Bibles, right towards the end of the New Testament, page one one nine one, First Timothy chapter one. Paul is writing. You see from verse one and verse two, Paul the apostle is writing to Timothy. He calls him his true son in the faith. And then we pick up this chapter from verse 12, remembering that this is God's Word. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, it's great to be in Hill Street this evening. Last Last week, I, uh, I uh, was away with Queen's University uh, speaking of preterm, and thank you so much for the prayers uh, and the support. Uh, there was a group of uh, between about 120 and 140 students at preterm. They were mostly freshers, so all first years, and uh, we, were, we were wonderfully blessed as we spent some time together in the letter of the Colossians, and it was a wonderful time. But do continue to pray for the students as they begin their university life. This is Freshers' Week for them. So they will have uh, lots of meals and grub crawls and into different people's homes and acoustic nights and all these different things going on. So please do remember to pray for uh, the students at Queen's as I told them we would be praying for them. Now, this evening we're in First Timothy, and this is the second part in our series in First Timothy. So if you, again, if you've missed this, if you missed last week, you'll be able to pick it up either on YouTube or Facebook, but also on our podcasting service, uh, you'll be able to pick it up through your desired site. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and if you have your Bible, please do keep it open as we make our way through this passage. We're going to look from verse 12 through to verse 20, the passage that Nigel read for us. So here's Paul, and Paul's writing to this church at Ephesus, and he is convinced, convinced that what they need more than anything else is the life-changing, life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. No add-ons, no different doctrine, no myths, no endless genealogies. You'll see it there in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5 of, of chapter 1. None of this, just truth. And so he sets out to remind this church 
that has been riddled with false teaching. Look at verse 20. Two of the suspected elders, it seems like they're elders, the commentators say, who have been, who've been, had, to, had to be disciplined because of what is going on. They've made shipwreck of their faith, verse 19. And so what Paul's trying to do is he's, he's trying to show them that they cannot graduate from the gospel, that the gospel is all in all. It's all that they need. It's all that they will ever need. And so we too cannot graduate from the gospel. The gospel is the ground floor of the Christian life and the mountaintop. If you like, it's the gates through which we enter into the Christian life and the wall garden in which we live and enjoy and remain. The gospel is everything. Or to put it another way, it's Paul's vaccine. It's Paul's vaccine against the disease spread by false teachers in a crooked world. And it's the only vaccine the only vaccine for us tonight in our spiritual sense, in our spiritual health, that will pre- prevent us from going into the ICU ward, as it were. And so Paul pours this big spoonful of medicine, or we could say that he's actually hooking the church up here to IV, intravenous antibiotic gospel drip, to, to help them combat the disease of false teaching, the disease of apathy and many other diseases that go along with it. So tonight, if our spiritual bloods were taken, I wonder what the results would be. Here are some things that might appear. Scripturitis. Not real. Okay, I've just, just made it up. Scripturitis. That Scripture no longer is the supreme and ultimate authority by which we live. Maybe it's experientialism, where myths and other mystical spiritual practices and experiences are sought after because of our feelings, and that we've replaced truth and doctrine with these. Half-in, half-out syndrome, where the person is comfortable keeping Jesus at a distance while still pretending to be a Christian. Or the allergic to holiness disease, where the person wants to live their life in the way that they want to, and they're not going to die to the old self, and they're not going to live for Jesus. And so tonight, what what do we want? We want to let the spiritual medicine of the gospel, this antibiotic of the gospel, heal us to bring us back to our senses, to put us the right way around, to put us back together again. And as we do that, we're going to see three things here this evening. And the first is this, the testimony of truth. This is from verses 12 through 14. Yesterday, a group of us were go-karting in the morning, and uh, we, were, we were at this place just outside Money Moor, uh, and we were going around this track. It was, a, it was a great track, but you know what happens? A group of guys turn up at, at the track, and you get handed your overalls, you get handed your helmet, uh, and your balaclava, and your gloves, and everybody suddenly thinks they're Lewis Hamilton or Michael Schumacher. Everybody's in the zone, can't talk to anyone. They're, they're thinking and uh, looking at the track, where they're going to break, where they're going to accelerate. Well, we get into this race. There's about 10 or 12 of us racing together. Uh, and you come down the, the, the first straight into the, the tight corner, and you come up, and then there's a, a series of tight corners, some faster than others. And then you kind of come out, and there's a, a long, swooping right-hand corner that you can go full throttle on, right? And you come around this corner. As, and as we're coming around this corner, there are three carts in front of me lined up, all side by side, right? Coming into the corner. I'm looking at Davy. Davy's thinking, this isn't going to end well, right? So three of them coming around the corner all together, and the guy on the inside just thinks to himself, do you know what? I'm just going to put them into the tires. 
And he hits the first card, which hits the second card. Everybody spins out, and I go sailing past, thinking, happy days, <laughs> right? And the guy, the, guy, the guy that spun them out, he was just behind me. And as we're coming down the street, one of the stewards hold out, holds out this big sign that says, final warning. And I was like, for me? And then I noticed that he was behind me. <laughs> it was his fault. Big sign, final warning. That's it. Any more messing about, any more dozing, and you're going to be out, right? You're going to be off the track. And sometimes that's us in the Christian life. We're, we're going at a, a hundred mile an hour. We weren't doing a hundred mile an hour yesterday, but if you're going at a hundred mile an hour in life and you make some decisions, some bad decisions, and it feels like your life's spinning a little bit out of control, you're heading towards the tires of life, you're heading towards the buffers, everything's falling apart, the wheels are coming off, you're starting to panic, and then a, a steward, as it were, you think the Lord Jesus Christ holds up this big sign and says, final warning. That's it. No more mistakes. Final warning. But Paul wants to combat against that idea. And that's why it's super important in this that we see what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to point this church at Ephesus towards grace. Because if we take the first chunk of our letter, so verse 1 through to verse 11, and we add that to verses 18 through 20, this could become very legalistic. It could become a list of do's and a list of don'ts. It could be all about keeping the rules. But what, is, what does he do? He shows them what the, the grace-filled life is like, what the actual good news of the gospel does in our hearts, this testimony of truth. And so some scholars have, have proposed the idea that here Paul goes off on a bit of a, 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 a little digress from verses 12 through 17. But to think that is is in fact to miss the entire point that he's trying to make. Paul is trying to combat error. He's trying to combat the compromising heart. He's trying to combat against everything in verse 19 that happens, the people who make shipwreck of their faith. He's trying to stop people relaxing their grip and thinking that anything goes in the faith. Instead, he wants them to see and to hear about the living Jesus who transforms real people's lives. And so what he wants is for them to see and to behold the transforming power of the gospel. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, this gospel that has given me strength, that has energized him, that has dynamitized his life, that has, that has kick-started his life, it's the very gospel. It's this gospel of amazing grace, and there's no greater transformation. Look at verse 13. He's a blasphemer. He used to be. He was a persecutor. He was a, a violent man, or in the ESV, an insolent opponent. This is Paul. This is the man that, that stands before this church, and he's talking to them about forgiveness and about grace because this is what changes lives. Now, what's Paul's story? Well, he used to be called Saul. And if you have your, your Bible, maybe come with me here to Acts chapter 8. It's good for us to be able to see this. Acts chapter 8, and we want to read verse 1. It's good to be able to chart a story. So Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. What was this man like? What was Saul like? 
Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 8 of Acts. And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen, and there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See what he's doing? One of the greatest opponents that has ever lived of the church of Jesus Christ. And then come with me. You're still in Acts. Come with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See what he's setting out his task to do? This man is set on exterminating the church. Brian Chapel says this. He says, Saul was a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer. And so what happens? Well, Kent Hughes, another commentator, says this. Paul, the untamable tiger, met the Lion of Judah at the Damascus off-ramp, and here his life is changed forever. If we were to read on in Acts 9, you'll see that. And so Paul's trying to fill in the, the backstory, as it were, in 1 Timothy, to give them an idea of who he was and what he has been like, and who Jesus is, and the power of the gospel. This is the one man who had the ability and the desire to try and kill every Christian that he met, to lock them up, and to see them put to death. And so look at verse 13 of chapter 1 of Timothy. Paul is saying that he was treated mercifully because he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't realize who he was doing it against. And then Jesus meets with him and opens his eyes and transforms his life. And then, as he says in 1 Timothy, grace and faith and love are poured out over to him and into him because of Jesus. What should the Lord have done with Paul, with Saul? Well, he should have looked at him and he should have squashed him like a bug. He should have taken him off the face of this earth. But instead, what do we read of in 1 Timothy? We read of a God who takes him and who turns him into this great display. A great display of who God is. Turns him into this wonderful work of art. And so in Paul, we can see much of who our God is. We can see exactly what he's like as we gaze at the, the portrait of Paul, this testimony of grace, this testimony of truth, we can see the, the brush strokes, as it were, of who God is, of His very character. And so God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church, and He made him into the chief missionary in the church to show him as being patient, to show himself our God as being love, 
to show himself as being a God who welcomes sinners, not a God who squashes them. And it's this same grace that rolls down from generation to generation to generation. It's the same grace that has, that has saved the saints like Bunyan and like Newton. Here's what Spurgeon said of Bunyan and Newton. He said, both of them had been ringleaders in sin before they became leaders in the army of the redeemed. The same grace of play cascading down generation after generation. The great artist, as it were, our God, pulling out and pinning up portraits of grace. Here's how Newton was described. He was a wicked and subordinate young man with a profane tongue. He was flesh-driven. He had a stone-cold heart. He had gambled his way into debt and dabbled in witchcraft. He delighted to lead others into temptation, later calling himself a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness. And what changes Newton? What changes Saul to Paul? Grace. It's grace. Now, grace is not this abstract thing somewhere above us, this weird thing that we can't get our hands on. What is grace? Well, Calvin says this. He says, all graces are bestowed on us through Christ. Jesus is grace embodied. All grace flows to us from Him. And so tonight, as we look around this room, what do we see? We see the same thing. We see testimonies of grace, portraits of God's character as we look at one another and as we see people who have been saved by grace, transformed by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps over a, a cup of tea and a cup of coffee in a little while, that would be a way to start a conversation. Tell me something of your testimony. How did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? To encourage one another, to see how the Lord is still working and saving people. And so we are people who have lives transformed, character changed, hearts healed, who have new desires and new ambitions and more humility as we walk in this road of, of discipleship, that people around us should see more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as the Spirit works in us. And how can we argue with the evidence that our God lives? That Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is changing lives that the Father has ordained. And so we as a church, what are we evidence of? We're evidence of His amazing grace. It's not some self-help program that we run here at Hill Street. It's not 10 steps how to become a better person, how to become a fitter person, how to become whatever type of person. All that we do week after week is we preach the wonderful good news of the gospel and we watch how it changes us, how it changes our lives. And so this is the work of Jesus. Now here's a question. How do you, Christian, how do you talk about our Savior? 
Because look at, look at this section of what Paul's doing. How does he speak of the Savior? Well, it's a section that is full of gratitude. It's full of sweet language about Jesus. And so, as Christians, have we learned to talk affectionately about Him? Have we learned affectionate language? Or are we just saying the same old things, presenting the gospel in a sort of dry and withered-up way? Or, or, or are we talking to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members about this, this thing that lives, this God that lives inside of us? Is it, is it bursting from us? Because in this little section, it's almost like if you were to press it anywhere, it oozes grace. And so, have we learned affectionate language? Have we been able to think about just how much it cost the Lord to save us? Have you known Him as your sweet Savior? The old hymn writer puts it like this, He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. So, friends, we have to learn this language, how to, how to process in our hearts and our minds the wonder of the gospel. Because this language that Paul uses is a language that is full of gratitude. And it's, it's no mistake because from grace flows gratitude. As the Lord takes us and saves us by His grace, how do we live our lives? We live our lives in, in thanks of Him. We sacrifice our lives. We give our lives over to Him. And so from grace flows gratitude. Galatians chapter 1 verse 23 says this, talking about Paul, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so, if it's true of Paul, the worst of sinners, then it gives us hope. It gives the rest of us hope. A testimony that is true. Then secondly, what do we want to see? We want to see in verse 15 this wonderful summary, this distillation of, of the gospel. In verse 15, we want to see this sufficient Savior in this. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy. I'm reading from the ESV. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This this line is one of the best lines that we could ever read. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is sufficient. He's the sufficient Savior. He, he's the one that we need. He's the one that we have to keep coming back to time and time again. He's sufficient for us. And whenever you taste and see and know that the Lord is good, why would you want something else? Why would you want anything else? It's like whenever you've tasted the best fish and chip in town, and you're convinced that it's at a particular shop, and someone suggests going to another takeaway, and you think, Absolutely not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even entertain it. Wouldn't go there. Why? Because you know it's no good. 
You know whenever you've tasted the best, there's nowhere else to go. He is sufficient. He's sufficient for every desire that we have. He's sufficient to cover us with His righteousness from every sin. Why would you trade Jesus? That's what, that's what Paul's uh, trying to say to these people. Why would you trade Him for anything else that's going on around us? Why would you swap Him for second best? Why would you start to listen to all of the things that's going on in the world? And so the question stands for us, why do we trade Jesus out? Why do we swap him? Why, whenever he's in our very hands, Sunday after Sunday, in this place, do we go into the world and we we forfeit him? What does the world have to offer us? Nothing that even comes close to Jesus. And so Jesus was enough for Paul. He was enough for all of his sins, for all of his evil actions towards the church. But here's the problem. The problem tonight is that we don't believe that Jesus is sufficient. What do I mean by that? Well, we have far too small a view of him. We don't believe that Jesus did enough for us to be forgiven. We don't believe that He has done enough for us to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. And for some of us, we think that we are beyond Jesus. And so we run away from His grace instead of into His grace. Within the last week, a man said to me, I'll never make it to heaven. God wouldn't want anything to do with me. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Or perhaps you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, I've cheated on my husband or on my wife and there's no way back for me now. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Or maybe you're thinking, I've done things that no one else knows about. When I was young, whenever I was involved in things that I should never have been involved in, Jesus Christ comes into the world to save sinners. Or maybe you're going to say, I've made bad decisions, I've made wrong decisions, decisions that I knew I shouldn't have made, and that that excludes me from this grace. There's no way Jesus wants anything to do with me. You at Hill Street, you're all really nice people, but if you knew about me, there's no way. There's no way that I could sit like we did this morning and enjoy the Lord's table. There's no way that I could do that. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I've stolen money. No one knows it. I can't tell anyone. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I've ran people's name into the ground. I've publicly ridiculed them, and I've badmouthed them to everyone. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I've plotted to murder someone. I've been involved in a murder. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see how liberating this is for us tonight. There's no sentence that you could come up with tonight that I could not reply, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
There's no ifs, no buts, no maybes, no exceptions. And so Paul has it in big lights. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so tonight we need to know that Jesus is big enough, that Jesus has told us that all who call upon His name shall be saved, that the blood that was shed on the cross as we thought about in our midweek, the very blood of God, that that purifies us, it washes us, it, it cleans us from all our sin, that Jesus came from heaven to do what? Not to squash sinners, but to save sinners, to open up His arms, to call sinners back to Himself. What did He do as He, as he walked around Jerusalem and, and around the countryside? He called sinners. How did He describe the gospel? To go out onto the highways and the byways and to call sinners. People like you and me. And so His sacrifice is sufficient. His sacrifice is enough. Forgiveness for you. And a new life just like Saul to Paul. A new identity. A new purpose. All He calls us to do tonight is to repent. To say sorry. And His blood will cleanse us from all of our sin. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Our last point, in the few moments that we have left, verses 16 through 20, we want to see the satisfying Savior. Here's what John Piper, commenting on this passage, he says this, you were made for something infinitely better than yourself, something better than your soul and your worth, something that you could never obtain, that you could never satisfy yourself. You were made for more. And what were we made for? We were made for experiencing the forgiveness of our Savior. Look at it as we trawl through this section of 1 Timothy. Look at all the characteristics of Jesus. Look at verse 12. What does he do? He gives Paul strength. Look at verse 13. Paul receives mercy. Look at verse 14. Grace overflows. Verse 14 again, his faith and his love overflow. Verse 16, again, I received mercy. Verse 16, his perfect patience. What do we hear in Paul's life? We hear that he is satisfied. He's not running around trying to find other answers, trying to find add-ons to Jesus. He's not searching after anything else. He has got Jesus. He is satisfied with Jesus as he thinks about him more and more and more. And the problem is for us that we, we, we don't get this. We hear this about being satisfied in Jesus, and we kind of think, well, maybe on a Sunday. Sundays are, are pretty good. We go along the Hill Street, we have our nice Sunday afternoon dinner. We maybe get a little nap or we go for a walk and we come back in the evening and we have tea and coffee and biscuits and we see our friends. Sundays are pretty satisfying, but the rest of the week, well, Jesus isn't really enough. Friends, Paul is satisfied by the Savior because he's known him to be the one who forgives him. Verse 15, he knows that he's the one who came to save him from a sin. 
who has taken the, the foremost, as he says, the foremost of all sinners and transformed his life. Why does Paul say that? He says that because as he journeys through life, what does he see? He sees how big the cross is. And he sees how far, far short he has fallen. And he sees his sin more sharply. And in light of a holy God, he says, I am, I am the foremost. I am the chief of all sinners. Friends, satisfaction is here in Jesus. And it's here to be found. And I don't want you to leave tonight until you're satisfied by Jesus. I challenge you to not leave tonight. Don't dare leave tonight until you find your satisfaction in Him and Him alone. Look at who he is, verse 17. Look at the, look at the gratitude that, that pours out of, of Paul as he thinks about these things, as he thinks about the patience and the, the mercy and the grace and the love that Christ has poured out to him. Look at, his, look at this, what we call a doxology, this praise that bursts from him to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. You see that his, his heart is just bursting out seams. As he experiences Christ, as he realizes that, that he is enough, that he's satisfied in him, that Christ is sufficient for him. And so the drum that he taps all the way along this chapter is, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Jesus is wonderful. And he's satisfied. He takes a ruined, messed up, broken, and wicked person. And look at verse 16. What does he do? He turns them into this almighty Christ-like display so that Jesus would take us and display his glory through us. And so Jesus takes each one of us who repents and believes in him, and he turns us into this portrait of his love and grace, so others might see his very character. Isn't that what Paul's saying? The Lord has saved me, not so that I get fame, not so that people know my name, not so people know my face and my renown, but so that Christ is presented. As grace is poured onto him, he replies with gratitude. Grace and gratitude fill his entire being. And it leaves him with no option but to honor and to love and to live for the Lord. He resolved this, and I would love this to be our resolve. Paul resolved that he would be a vessel where the grace of God alone would be present and where the grace of God alone would be magnified nothing of himself. And so tonight as a congregation, can we resolve to do exactly the same in this place? To live our lives before one another. To live our lives, as it were, uh, to have each of our portraits hung around the walls here. Not portraits of our faces, but uh, portraits of grace, of what the Lord has done, of how he has saved us, so that we can live our lives before one another. Resolved not to live for our own fame, 
but resolve to be a vessel where the grace of God alone will be present and magnified. So is Jesus' work on display for all to see in your life? Christian, can people around you see this oozing and bursting out of you? Or do we hide it? Ashamed of it? Scared? Has the grace of Jesus worked itself down into the soil of our lives? And here's the problem again. The problem is tonight that sometimes the, the, the wonder of this passage, the, the excitement in this passage, the grace and the mercy of this passage, the way that it, it bursts out in praise in verse 17, that's not our story. Why? Because sometimes we come to Scriptures with entitlement, and we think to ourselves, of course we, are, we deserve to be saved. Of course Jesus Christ should have came here to save me. Does He know who I am? Does He know what I have achieved? Does He know how great I am? I'm wonderful, aren't I? Of course Jesus should come and save me. And that's to invert the whole gospel, to invert how we are to think about ourselves in light of a holy God. How wrong we are if we think that we deserve to be saved. How misled we are. How puffed up we are with pride. You see, sin makes us self-centered. But the effect of grace makes us Christ-centered. Sin makes us self-centered, but grace makes us Christ-centered. So with this we close. Christ came into this world to save sinners. And so what do we want to say tonight? Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise the Lord that you came to save people like me, people who have made a mess like me, people who are spinning off the track and heading towards the tires, people who have made wrong decisions and who have messed up again and again and again. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not a God who hangs up the sign and says, last chance, but you're the God who opens up his arms and says, come on to me tonight. Come and be saved. Come and enjoy forgiveness and mercy and patience. John Newton said this. It's his last recorded words a week or two before he died. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. The hymn writer puts it like this. I rejoice in my Redeemer, the greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in him and no other. My soul is satisfied in him and in him alone. I trust and I pray that the antibiotic of the gospel will purge us from every disease of sin, every wrong and twisted thought about Jesus. And then let us go and let us live our lives as portraits of God's amazing grace.